There are many of us who are in hostile environments. We have to trust God will defend our cause. That's his part. Our part is Micah 6.8, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We thank you that there is none like you. We ask, Lord, this morning that you, by your Holy Spirit, would make much of Jesus, that you would illuminate this text before us, and that you would cause us to be conformed into Christ's image. May we be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And we yearn to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and also to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So this morning we exalt you as our God and King, and we ask these things out of necessity, out of sobriety, out of humility, for you alone have the words of eternal life. So speak now. Your servants are listening. We ask that you would be glorified as your Spirit teaches us from your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, we've all heard the phrase, like father, like son. We've heard the phrase, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And what we mean by those expressions is that often our personality traits or our behavior are passed on from our generation or from us to our children. And so they end up looking like us. They end up sounding like us. They say, they look, they do the things that mom or dad do. Many times that's good. Those are good things and we're proud of them. Uh, Like our work ethic or our very elevated sense of humor or our desire to live for the Lord, those good things get passed on from our generation to our kids. Other times though, we pass along some of the things we're not too proud of. We see our kids fumbling through the same sinful patterns that we ourselves fell susceptible to. And as parents, you can nod in agreement, God often ministers conviction and repentance in us as we see our own flaws displayed in the life of our children. Now, in our text this morning, which we just read, we're going to observe a series of instances where Isaac's life almost perfectly mirrors his father Abraham's. We just read this, but maybe you missed it. He's lying about his wife being his sister. His servants are arguing with other servants about water, and people are seeking to make agreements with him because of his wealth and power. And this is not mere repetition. This is actually a critical chapter, one of the only critical chapters that we have in our Bibles about Isaac. And we're going to see God's covenant with Abraham extended to Isaac because thus far it has solely been with Abraham. We know that Abraham had to trust that God would be true to his word to bless his children after him with the same promise that he had received. In fact, in Genesis 17, in two places, God had promised this. First in verse 7, God had said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God had promised him that there in verse 7. And then in verse 19, 
God had said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Now, this did not happen in Abraham's lifetime. And up until now, we do not yet have a record anywhere of God establishing his covenant with Isaac. And at this point, Genesis 26, Isaac is now over 60 years old. He's been waiting a long time. Just as Abraham waited for Isaac, now Isaac is waiting for the covenant. Last week in chapter 25, we read and learned about the death of Abraham. And remember, he died in a good old age, full of years. We saw that 20 years after they were married, Rebekah, his wife, conceived and because God had touched her womb. And then she gave birth to twin boys, Esau and Jacob. And we saw a foreshadowing of what to expect from these two. From the womb, God had decreed that Esau, the older brother, the one who would be favored, would actually be the one who served the younger, that Jacob would be loved and Esau would be rejected or hated. And sure enough, at the opportune time, Esau, we saw, sold his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. We also saw Jacob, whose name means usurper, supplanter, living up to his name and annexing his brother's birthright. Now, this morning, as we look at chapter 26, we will see God confirming his covenant to Isaac that he had made with Abraham. And we're going to see how Isaac experienced much of the same highs and lows that his father did. So if you're taking note, we're going to divide this longer chapter into four sections, and we'll cover some of them more briefly. But we're going to see a blessing renewed in verses 1 through 5, a blunder repeated in verses 6 through 16, a bitterness revisited in verses 17 through 25, and a bargain reached in verses 26 through 35. And as we study this, it's my prayer that we're reminded that God's covenant isn't just for our parents, right? No one just rides their parents' coattails into the kingdom. Though we do owe much to our parents, it is not their responsibility to trust Christ and receive his finished work by proxy, that we receive it because mom and dad did. We must each call on the name of the Lord and place our faith in him. So let's begin with verse 1, and let's see a blessing renewed. Verse 1 says, Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. So remember, Moses is writing this, and in verse 1, he's referencing the famine that we just studied uh, earlier on when Abraham settled in Canaan. He says, beside the former famine. So we read about that in Genesis chapter 12. And if you remember that, Abraham had gone down to sojourn in Egypt And remember, when he was there, he lied for the first time about Sarah, his wife, being his sister. We saw her brought into Pharaoh's harem, and then God afflicts Pharaoh and his entire house with great plagues, which is a little bit of a foreshadowing of what's going to happen centuries later in Egypt. But eventually, they go back up to Canaan, and the famine subsided. Now, famine, this is a new famine, and this was not foreign to this part of the world, nor to this time in ancient history. When food supplies run scarce, you there, especially at Abraham's day, did not have a Publix or a Costco or our favorite Aldi to run to. You didn't have that. Uh, If you don't agree with Aldi, we can talk later and I can tell you how biblically you're wrong. We don't have these grocery stores to run up to for a grocery run in the middle of famine. Instead, you'd be compelled to pack up everything that you have 
and to spend time somewhere else where there was ample food and supplies of water. And so they have to leave. They're compelled to leave. Verse 2, or the rest of verse 1 and verse 2 says, So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, and the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, in a minute, we'll talk more about Abimelech. But notice, God commands Isaac, do not go down to Egypt. And then in the next three verses, we have the renewal of the covenant that God had made with Abraham. But see, with Isaac now, he seems to slightly enlarge it. So notice verse 3. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And then he says in verse 4, this includes multiplying your offspring as the stars of heaven. And then he says, I'll give to your offspring all these lands. That phrase, all these lands, is important. Because if you notice on the screen, the covenant was this, that I will be with you. That's the best part of the covenant. I will be with you and I will bless you. And to you and to your offspring, not just Canaan, but he says all these lands. In fact, I'll multiply your offspring and give them not just Canaan, but all these lands. And then we have the reminder of the one who would crush the head of the serpent in your offspring, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's not just a picture of the Jews. That's a picture of the Messiah who would come through um, Israel. So if you've noticed here, there's new language here. There's more expansive language. God had said, I'll give you Canaan. But now as Isaac is sojourning in Gerar, God says, I'm going to give you all these lands as well. This is an expansion of the original covenant with Abraham. God's not only renewing what he promised, but he's extending it. Now notice verse 5. This blessing to Isaac is predicated on Abraham's obedience. Notice verse 5. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham, Isaac's father, could have not believed God, and it would not have been credited to him as righteousness. Abraham could not have obeyed God's voice and set out from Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham could have not kept God's charge and command of circumcision. Abraham could have chosen not to keep his statutes and his laws and instead walked in disobedience. He could have said, no, I'm not going to offer Isaac my own beloved son on Mount Moriah. He's mine. You gave him to me. I'm going to hold on to him and keep him. But because he did obey, Isaac benefits from his father's obedience. Now, we know Abraham wasn't perfect and neither was Isaac. So moving quickly to our second section, notice this blunder repeated. Verse 6 says that Isaac settled in Gerar. And when the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, this should sound familiar, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Oh boy, where have we seen this before? Back in Genesis 20, remember this on the screen? From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. You see, it wasn't just in Egypt with Pharaoh, but a second moment in Abraham's life where he falls prey to this fear of man and fear that his wife is going to be taken. 
or that he's going to be killed. So out of protection of save his own skin, he dreams up this idea. Well, she's my sister. That'll save my skin. I'm not sure what's going to happen to her, but I'll be okay. And so here's Isaac drawing up a play out of his dad's old playbook. Now, this may have been a story that circulated throughout Abraham's household. Perhaps Abraham shared this with Isaac. Hey, Isaac, or maybe with Ishmael even. Uh, this is what happened when we went down to Egypt years ago. This is what happened when we interacted in Gerar with Abimelech. And so maybe it was sort of a family story. So maybe he's just pulling a scheme that old dad had tried growing up. Hey, this is what you do to keep yourself alive if you're traveling with a beautiful wife. This is how you do it. Or more likely, it could be that Isaac knew about this blunder in his father's life and he intended to do better. I'll do better when I get the opportunity. Give me a fair shake. But now he's on the scene and now he's falling into the same fear of man, the same timidity. And though he grew up saying, I can do better than dad, he ends up sinning just like his father. I'm sure none of us can relate to that here at all. Verse 8 reintroduces us to this familiar name. Verse 8 says, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So there's something about their interaction which showed him, yeah, that's not your sister. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she's your wife. How then could you say she's my sister? And here Isaac explains, because I thought lest I die because of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you've done to us? One of the people might have easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us and upon yourself. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall be put to death. Now, some of you are thinking this poor Abimelech, this guy had to deal with it with Abraham. Now the same guy's dealing with his son, Isaac. He should have known better. Well, even though the same name is used here, this would have been decades after that encounter. And so most likely, this is a title and not necessarily the man named Abimelech. This is the title that the king of Gerar has, unless this is Abimelech Jr. Um, but notice what's changed since Abraham's time. The Abimelech back then had taken Sarah into his household. He had done that prematurely, quickly. And God had come to him in a dream and warned him. And here with Rebekah, no one has yet approached her. And so did they learn from what happened with Abraham prior? If there's a foreigner that comes in, take your time. Uh, we don't know. But verse 12 tells us that something changed. In verse 12, it says, And Isaac sowed in that land, and he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. So they're settling there, and now he's reaping quite quickly. The Lord blessed him and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants so that the Philistines envied him. Now some of that ostensibly came from his father's wealth that he inherited, but notice that his wealth greatly outpaces his father. In the same year, he reaps a hundredfold what he sowed. It's clear that God's blessing is upon him by reaping a hundredfold, but also because the text tells us in verse 12, the Lord blessed him. And so we learn here that the Philistines see this growth, this wealth, this expansion, and they grow envious of Isaac. And so notice what they do to exact revenge. Verse 15 says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father. 
So they see his, his wealth growing, his flocks growing, his crops growing, and something that's critically important in this part of the world, this arid agrarian society, is the most critical thing is water. And water, we know, not only was critical, it was not very abundant. It still is hard to come by today. Remember, they didn't have tap water. You can't just go into the tap and turn it on. Um, they needed wells. Wells or live river sources were vital for sustaining life, not just for humans, but also for your crops and for your livestock. And so not only were wells precious, they were also expensive to dig. And so for someone to come onto your property and then to seize a well that you owned, well, that could be considered an act of war. But we know Isaac doesn't have any land. He's just sojourning. He's just sort of camping out, so to speak. And so as he's using these wells, for them to bury those wells, that's a serious breach of trust. But the text tells us it's out of envy that they had done this, this hostile act of going and stopping up and essentially burying all of Abraham's wells. Now, on top of that, Abimelech's response is very telling to Isaac. Verse 16, Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So here we see, don't we, some similarities, but also some differences. We see Isaac falling into the same patterns of sin as his father, lying, deceiving, while also receiving the same favor and blessing as his father, but he's being treated quite differently than Abraham was. Abraham seemed to be given the, the freedom to dig these wells, and now they're going back and they're treating Junior differently. They're treating Isaac quite different. Now, we're not sure how soon they buried the wells after Abraham dies, but the reality is they're not extending the same cordiality to Isaac. And so let's look at this third section, a bitterness revisited. And it says in verse 17, Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. So remember, he was not to sojourn down in Egypt, but he's really not supposed to step too far away from the promised land. And yet here he is settling. And it says, Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham, his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. Now, just quick note, I love this. I love that Isaac has the choice to go and to dig new wells, to use expense uh, and some of his, his blessing and his wealth to dig new wells, or he has the choice to go back to the work that his father has done, to the foundation that his dad had laid for him, and, and even with the threat of the Philistines coming against him by, by stopping those up, which would be much more aggressive on his part to go dig them up, be much more passive for him just to go dig new wells. What does he do? In a, in a sense, he honors his father. He goes back to that place and chooses to dig out the old wells. He even names them the same name or names that his father had given them. And this, I think, is a nod of respect to his father. A quick side note here. Uh, there is a little bit of spiritual application. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones did a series of sermons how God works uniquely in each generation. He used the word revival. I like the word renewal. Um, but he uses these verses to argue if we want to see that in our day, where God is at work in a particular way among our generation. He says, you don't need to turn to something new. Just dig out the old wells. And, and I like that. There's a great series of sermons. The book is called Revival. But now we come to a familiar quarrel 
that happened as far back in Abraham's life as Genesis 13. Remember there in Genesis 13, Abraham's herdsmen had begun to quarrel with the herdsmen of his nephew Lot. They began to quarrel over the amount of room that they can graze. That was way before Isaac was born, before Ishmael was born. It was before Melchizedek. It was before Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a long time ago. Now, in Isaac's case, this argument is not just over the amount of land, but over water. And now that he's unearthed his father's wells, his servants begin to find new wells. And the men in the surrounding area, they are trying to jealously claim ownership of these new wells. Look at verse 19. When Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, the water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, which basically means contend or contention. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Rehoboth means open spaces. There's now room for Isaac to sojourn there without strife or contention. And so if you think about this, in the midst of all of these annoyances, as he's going from well to well, they're fighting over this one. They're fighting over that one. Okay, here's finally one we're not arguing over. And in the midst of all these seeming setbacks or annoyances, here's what the Lord was providentially doing behind the scenes. He was providentially bringing him back to Beersheba. And it may be as he arrives back in Beersheba that he's overwhelmed, he's afraid, he's thinking about the threats of enemies all around, the surrounding peoples, a man of God in a hostile place. And so that brings us to this final section, a bargain reached. Notice verse 23. He's being led along, and then from there he went to Beersheba. And it says, the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. See here God again confirms his blessing and his covenant that he had established with Abraham he reiterates it again in the same chapter at this place, Beersheba, to Isaac. It's for Abraham's sake. And I love that Isaac's first order of business is to build an altar to Yahweh. I also love this additional note that Isaac's servants went and dug a well and they found one. They found one right there at Beersheba. I love that. See, God has been using these wells seemingly to direct Isaac and now as an added bonus, they settle in. He worships Yahweh with this altar. And then, oh, we happen to find a well right here. But now we're going to get another visit from Abimelech. Verse 26, when Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his army. We've seen Philcol earlier, and I believe, again, this is a title for uh, his general. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me? seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. And they said, we see plainly the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you 
that you will do us no harm. Just as we've not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace, you are now the blessed of the Lord. Now, there's a little bit of irony here. They did not, they're, they're making their case a little cleaner than it was. Oh, we sent you away with peace. Yeah, okay. This seemed like you were stopping up my dad's wells and you said, leave, be gone. But you sent me away with peace. So there's a little bit of irony here. But I find some fascinating insight in these verses for how to handle bitter conflict with, with people who are hostile to you. And so for a moment, I just want to take a little side note and have everyone here jot down four ideas because I think these are helpful for us to build unity in the church and for us to deal with those who are hostile to us outside of the church. So notice Isaac is surrounded by hostility. Dad's wells have been sabotaged. The new wells are being contested. And now he's being told by the authorities, or he has been told, you need to leave. But now that same authority comes back and they want something from him. And so I think this can help us navigate um, if we're ever in that same situation. I like how this plays out. So here's how this may help us deal with conflict or with, with those who are hostile towards us. First of all, if you're taking note, number one, Isaac directly addresses the source of the problem. In verse 27, he says, why have you come to me? You hate me, and you sent me away from you. There are some who are passive-aggressive, and that's still aggression. And passive aggression compounds the problem. It doesn't solve it. So Isaac doesn't avoid the elephant in the room. He introduces it. Would you like to meet the problem here? The problem is that you hate me, and you've sent me away from you. And this is really the only way forward if two conflicted people are going to work through their disagreements. You have to address the source of the problem. Secondly, though, Isaac does not repay evil for evil. So notice in verse 29, they're, they're painting their side very innocently. But notice that in verse 30, he doesn't argue with them. He doesn't quarrel with them. He made them a feast. They ate and drank, and they exchanged oaths. Isaac sent them on their way, and from this point on, they did depart from him in peace. So he could have been bitter about the actions these Philistines had committed against them. He could have sought revenge, but instead he turns and blesses them and sends them out with peace. And we, there are many of us who are in hostile environments. We have to trust God will defend our cause. That's his part. Our part is Micah 6, 8, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God. Thirdly, we learn here that Isaac is willing to work alongside others who had failed him in the past. Notice he doesn't reject their offer. He doesn't say, I've been here before, guys. I know what you're up to. No, he exchanges oaths and sends them in peace. And they can go in peace without fear that he's going to bring up their errors again. And we see the same quality in the Apostle Paul, don't we? We see Paul eventually asking John Mark to come and accompany him in his work, even though Mark had bailed on one of their early missionary journeys. When we've experienced grace, we can impart grace to others. And if we've not experienced grace, then we can become harsh toward others. I'm thankful that Isaac, that Paul are willing to work alongside others who had failed. And finally, the fourth thing I want you to jot down is that God's blessing on Isaac was recognized by others because he entrusted himself to God the men observe, God is with you. You are blessed of the Lord. And when we likewise choose to walk in the fruit of the Spirit, in wisdom, in humility, then others will recognize that God is with us. 
And so maybe that's helpful for you. I know it's helpful uh, for me. So they come and they reach a bargain. God's blessing rests upon Isaac. As we'll see, that's really about it in the annals of Isaac's life. We have a chapter or two, and then we begin next week looking at Isaac's blessing upon Jacob. And so I encourage you to read ahead chapter 27. But the last two verses of this chapter show us now what's happening with Esau. So we have a, God's blessing, the re- reiteration of the covenant with Isaac. What about Esau? Well, we get caught up with him in verse 34. When he was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Basemeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. And notice verse 35. They made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. So right out of the gate, all we get from this two-verse update is the character of Esau. Not only did we see it last week that he despised his birthright, he's willing to trade it in for a bowl of soup, but now we see he takes multiple wives and his wives overrule his authority and they, they usher in bitterness into his parents' lives. Now, sadly, I have seen that many times. Many sons will ignore the counsel of their parents. They'll marry a woman who's unwilling to submit to him and respect and love his parents, and that introduces bitterness and division in the family. We often hear about mother-in-laws who are awful, but here, here's a biblical example of the daughter-in-law who introduces division and bitterness. And so sadly, we're going to see Esau continuing to spiral away from God's favor, and ultimately, Jacob will receive the birthright and the blessing. But this morning, there's much we can learn from this chapter about the work of Christ and about our own sinfulness. And so I'd like just to jot down a few application points when we think about this description of Isaac. First of all, we often incur the patterns of our parents' sin. The phrase, like father, like son. They've done research, and research has proven that sons of adolescent fathers were almost uh, two times more likely to become adolescent fathers themselves. One person said this, the lesson here is that as parents, we can pass down horrible habits of sin to our children. Not only do they inherit a sin nature from mom and dad, but they often also pick up by virtue of their environment, their parents' specific sin habits. The truth is, if we grow up seeing sinful patterns in our dad's life, in our mom's life, we can often become likely to adopt those same practices ourselves. In fact, alcoholic parents tend to see alcohol abuse embraced by their children. And so that's what people usually mean when they say, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. In other words, the things that dad did are now seen in his son or daughter. But that isn't always the case. That's why I said often. Sometimes the opposite happens. We grow up in an environment and we watch the folly of mom and dad. We see, in my case, we see alcoholism, drug abuse. We see divorce as we grow up. And that emboldens us. That actually maybe gives us stamina or courage or resolve to recoil from all of that temptation and resolve, I don't want to do the same mistakes my parents did. Sometimes it can can bring resolve in our lives. Now, whether or not that is the case, the second point is true of all of us. This is true for every single one of us. And that is, number two, we all inherit the curse through someone else's disobedience. All of us 
may fall prone to our parents' sinful patterns, but all of us have received the curse in Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men and women because all sinned. You see, the Bible teaches that there's original sin and that in Adam, you and I have all become corrupted. Now listen to how the 1689 London Baptist Confession communicates this in the section, The Fall of Mankind and Sin and Its Punishment. I think we have it on the screen. If you have this, this is the uh, book of the month we're recommending, and this is on page 21. It says, By this sin, our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them, and through this, death came upon all. All became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. And it goes on to say, By God's appointment, they were the root and the representatives of the whole human race. Because of this, the guilt of their sin was accounted, and their corrupt nature passed on, to all their offspring who descended from them by ordinary procreation. Their descendants are now conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin and partakers of death and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. And mom grabbed your cheek and told you how perfect you were. No, in Adam, we're all condemned. We're all sinners. What a wonderful summary this gives us. Now, some will take this too far, and they'll teach that there are generational curses. You have a generational curse because your parents sinned in this way. Now, there's a curse upon you in your generation. And though we don't want to minimize the fact that sin patterns sometimes do pass from one generation to another, we don't see anywhere in Scripture where believers are under, believers in Christ are under any sort of curse. In fact, Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeems us by becoming a curse for us. Additionally, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now, Peter's addressing the futility of religious Judaism, but this can also apply to the patterns of sin in our Gentile parents. And the truth is, folks, we've all inherited a sin nature that condemns each one of us to hell. But those who have trusted Christ have been ransomed. We have been redeemed through his precious blood. And that brings us to our third point. And what an important point it is. Please do not miss this. For this gives us the flip side. We become inheritors of the promise through someone else's obedience. You see, verse 5 in our text tells us that I will do all of this, Yahweh says, I'm going to do all of this to you because Abraham obeyed me. Why did God reaffirm his covenant with Isaac? Why? Because of Abraham's obedience. Why does God establish his covenant of grace with us? Is it because of your obedience? I'm glad no one said amen to that this morning. It's not because of your obedience. It's because of Christ's. Romans 5.19 says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, that's Adam, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's all who are in Christ. We know the hymn, Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone 
Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. You see, because Abraham obeyed, Isaac is now a joyful recipient of God's blessing. And because Christ obeyed, you and I are now inheritors of God's covenant of grace. What a wondrous gospel this is. The final thing I'd love for you to jot down this morning is that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. Now, at first glance, a lot of commentators like to point out that Isaac is sort of unimpressive. We have our father Abraham and all of his exploits and all of his great steps of faith. And we have Jacob and the big change we see in him from Jacob to Israel. And we can identify with that, that change of name and that change of character. But then we have Isaac. Isaac's sort of bland. There's not a lot to him. And some have suggested that Isaac was timid and weak. That on Mount Moriah, he should have spoke up for himself. He should have fought the Philistines here. He should have done more in the next chapter next week to reconcile Esau and Jacob. We as men might be tempted to think, oh, Isaac's soft. But I want us to rethink that idea for a minute. Instead of arguing with his father on the trek up to Mount Moriah, he submitted himself and became obedient to death. Instead of fighting these Philistines and demanding his rights, he emptied himself and took the very nature of a servant. Instead of standing up for himself, he remained silent. In the secret place, as he communed with Yahweh, he only desired to do that which pleased the Father. Does that remind you of anyone? I wonder if Isaac's humble, quiet, and submitted posture is less a picture of a weak man and more a glorious display of our Savior. In the midst of a world outside of here that would perceive us as weak, we know that God blesses the poor in spirit. He blesses those who mourn. He blesses the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and yes, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You and I may not be the loudest person in the room, and if that's the case, may our Christ-likeness speak for us. Now, as we close this morning, there's a wonderful command for us at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul there says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, Paul's saying, in light of all that we've been given by the Father, spelled out in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, and in light of what is our responsibility in the body of Christ, spelled out for us in Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, the only right response is for us to be imitators of God, beloved children. Now, we're not imitators of God to become his beloved children. We do not walk in love so that Christ will love us. No, because we're beloved children, because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, now we can walk in love toward others. And the Father is our great example. Remember, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And may the same be true of us. May it be said of us, like Father, like Son. Amen? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this morning, we're thankful for this simple example of Isaac 
certainly not perfect like his father Abraham. And yet because of Abraham's obedience, Isaac was a recipient of the covenant. And in like manner, because Christ was active in his obedience in fulfilling the law to the letter, in Christ's passive obedience as he died in our place as the perfect sacrifice, the propitiation, our substitute at Calvary, because Christ perfectly obeyed, we too now can be recipients of your covenant of grace. Lord, this morning we thank you that though we were in Adam, you drew us, Father, and we repented of our sin and we turned in faith to Christ and now we are in him. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who is still in Adam, who has never bent the knee of faith and trusted in Christ, would today be the day of salvation? Lord, would you draw them with kindness and show them they can't be religious or spiritual or perfect. They need to come and admit, confess their sin, renounce it, and trust you for what your son accomplished for them at Calvary. Lord, do that work of salvation, of renewal, not only in those who will come to faith, but Lord, those of us who continue to trust you by faith, who remind ourselves of the gospel daily. Lord, continue to work sanctification in each one of us. May we be imitators of our heavenly father. May people see us and see the father. We know that's in, in only a special way in Christ, the, the only begotten Son of the Father, we are adopted into Him. But Lord, we pray that we would also imitate our Father. We love you and we thank you. This is our daily prayer, Lord, to walk with you, to trust you, to obey you. We ask this in Christ's name and for Christ's glory. Amen. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.